Hi, I'm Lauren. Hi, I'm Kelly, and welcome to The Millennial Minimalists. We're two Canadian millennials and minimalists on a mission to live more with less. And together, our goal is to inspire you to design a simpler, more intentional life. Hi, everyone. Today's discussion is all about how we can manage the distractions in our lives so that we can take control over our time and attention. Everyday distractions can clutter our minds, hinder our productivity, and hold us back from the lives we want to live. But what if there is a way to become indistractable? Today, I am joined by former Stanford lecturer, behavioral design expert, and international best-selling author, Nir Al to discuss his top-rated book titled Indistractable, How to Control your attention and choose your life, which has been named one of the best leadership books of the year by Amazon. In Indistractable, Nir explores the internal and external triggers that can lead us to distraction, and he shares practical and lasting solutions to help us manage them with intention. And together, Nir and I discuss the key strategies in his book to help you create traction each day and ultimately become what he calls indistractable. Be inspired to put Nir's ideas into practice and take control of your life. So thank you very much for being here today. Your best-selling book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life is such a powerful read. I just finished it a few weeks ago, as you know, and it has already been a game changer for me. I've been applying some of your strategies and I can say that I already feel less distracted. And so I'm very excited to share your lessons with our listeners today. And in our conversation, I'd specifically like to explore the four strategies in your book for becoming indistractable, which include mastering internal triggers, making time for traction, hacking back on external triggers, and preventing distractions with what you call hacks. And before we go into it, to start things off, can you briefly share your background and the experiences that inspired you to write Indistractable? Absolutely. And thank you so much for the kind words. You know, when, when people put this stuff to use and uh, I hear things like it's, it's changing my life and I can already see the, the, how it's making a difference, that is like catnip for authors. Like there's nothing better than hearing that. So thank you so much for saying that. And, and, but if, if I'm really honest with you, uh, I have to tell you, Kelly, I didn't write the book for you. I wrote the book for me because I was incredibly distracted. Uh, I remember that uh, there was one particular instance that uh, in my life where I said, "Whoa, I really have to reassess my relationship with distraction because uh, it was it was it was really degrading the quality of my life." I, I remember I was with my daughter one afternoon, and we had a beautiful day planned, just some daddy daughter time. And I remember we had this activity book of different things that dads and daughters could do together. You know, do a Sudoku puzzle, have a paper airplane flying contest, all kinds of, of little activities. And one of the activities in the book was to ask each other, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? You know, flying through the air like Superman or uh, shoot spider webs like Spider-Man, you know, something, some kind of superpower. And I remember the question verbatim, but I can't tell you what my daughter said. Because in that moment, for whatever reason, I thought it was a good time to just check my phone real quick and look at this one quick thing. And by the time I looked up from my device, she was gone because I was sending her a very clear message that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. And I regretted that because Mm -hmm. I knew I had blown this perfect daddy-daughter moment. And if I'm really honest with you, it didn't just happen with my daughter. It would happen when I would sit down on my desk at work and say, okay, now I'm going to focus on that thing I have to do. I'm not going to procrastinate. And yet 20, 30, 40 minutes later, 
I'd be doing everything but the thing I had to do. Uh, it would happen with my physical health, right? Where I would say, oh, now I'm going to start exercising. Now I'm going to eat right. And I didn't and I wouldn't. Uh, so I think, you know, if you ask me today, what superpower I think is most important to have, a realistic superpower, it'd be nice to fly through the air like Superman, but let's be realistic here. The, the realistic superpower that I think is most important and we can all acquire is the power to be indistractable because there is no area of your life that is not affected by your ability to sustain your attention because this is how we control our life. And the world is bifurcating into two kinds of people. The people who let their time and attention be controlled and manipulated by others and people who say, nope, I decide how I spend my time. I decide how I control my attention because this is how I decide to spend my life. That is the macro skill. If you can become indistractable, there's the, the, every area of your life is affected, right? When people say, oh, I wish I had more time to read books because you're not indistractable. I wish I had more time to exercise. It's because you're not indistractable. I wish I could spend more quality time with my family. It's because you're not indistractable. So becoming indistractable is incredibly important. And, and I'm happy to say, you know, as I mentioned, I wrote the book for me. It took me five years to write this book. Why? Because I kept getting distracted. <laughs> because until I learned these techniques, you know, for me, I've written two uh, books now and they're, they're all very uh, science-based. I'm not one of these uh, self-help authors that says, oh, it works for me, so it's going to work for everybody. No, no, no. I want to see the peer-reviewed published journal articles from a scientific credible, uh, from a credible scientific journal, because that's that's the only way you you, you get buy-in from me. I'm not going to start doing stuff that isn't backed by, by peer-reviewed studies. And the book is full of 30 pages of citations, because I wanted to really show people, no, this is based on really good science. And using these techniques, I have to say, in my own life, has touched Every, it changed everything. Uh, I'm, I'm a, uh, tomorrow actually is my birthday. I'm going to be 43 years old. Oh, no kidding. Happy birthday. And I'm in the best shape of my life. I used to be clinically obese. And I'm not saying this to brag because I'm saying it because I'm amazed that by being indistractable over the years, first time in my life, I have a six pack. I'm 43 and I have a six pack. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> I didn't know that's part of your story. That's amazing. Well, I don't, I don't like to post Instagram photos of my, of my body, but um, yeah, I mean, I keep it private. But you know why does it happen? Because I consistently do what I say I'm going to do. I have a better relationship with my daughter and my wife than ever before. I've been married for 20 years now, and let me tell you, we have a better relationship than ever because I'm fully present with the people I love. My work output has gone through the roof because when I say I'm going to do something, I actually do it. So becoming indistractable is truly the superpower, the skill of the century. Yeah, you explain in your book that to be indistractable means to do what you say you will do, exactly what you just said. And you explain that we shouldn't blame the distractions. We should rather take ownership of how we respond to them. So the people who exactly. say they'll, they'll do, they're going to do something and then they don't do it, I would say that often they will blame the distractions around them. Really, it's how they're using certain tools, right? They're not using them to their advantage. And we'll get into that. But can you describe the difference between distraction and traction? Yeah, yeah, sure. So this is a great place to start to really understand what this term means. Uh, I'm kind of a word nerd. Uh, I like to know what, what words really, really mean. And I, I kind of thought I knew what distraction was. I, you know, We use that word all the time and we throw it around. And I was amazed to see that I don't think I really understood what that word meant. A good test to see if you really know what a word means is to see if you can name the antonym. Can you tell me the opposite of that word? And most people, if you say, okay, what's the opposite of distraction? They'll say focus, right? That makes sense. I don't want to be distracted. I want to be focused. But that is not actually the opposite of distraction. If you look at the origin of the word, the origin of the word uh, distraction comes from trahare, which means in Latin to pull. 
So the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is in fact traction. That both words come from that same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction by definition is any action that pulls you towards what you said you're going to do. Things you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values, help you become the kind of person you wanna become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite of traction is distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you farther away from your goals, farther away from the things you do with intent, farther away from your values and becoming the kind of person you wanna become. So this is more than just semantics. This is really important because this dichotomy allows us to understand that any action can be traction or distraction. Let me give you an example. For years, I would sit down at my desk first thing in the morning and say, okay, now I'm gonna get started on that, on that big project I've been delaying on, that thing that I've been procrastinating on. I'm not, gonna, uh, I'm not gonna get distracted. I'm not gonna procrastinate. Here I go, I'm gonna get started right now. Nothing's gonna get in my way, but first let me check some email, mm -hmm. right? Let me just uh, scroll that Slack channel real quick to catch up from things at work. Uh, let me just do that a couple things on my to-do list. Let me get Why this out of the way that? first. <laughs> because we are allowing distraction to trick us, to fool us into prioritizing the urgent and the easy work at the expense of the important work. Because we say to ourselves, well, you know, I got to check email sometime. That's productive, right? That's a work-related task. I got to scroll the Slack channels. I got to do those things on my to-do list at some point. So I'm being productive. No, you're not. You're being pseudo-productive because you're allowing distraction to trick you into doing whatever other thing it is. By definition, that is a distraction because it's not what you said you would do with your time. And this is why when it comes to those big projects that are a little bit harder to do that we know we need to get done, we procrastinate, we get distracted from those because we're not doing what we said we would do, right. okay? So again, this is the definition of becoming indistractable. It's the kind of person who is as honest with themselves as they are with other people. They do what they say they're going to do. So even if it's a work task, email, right? It's still a distraction because it's not what you said you'd do with your time. Conversely, anything can be traction. So, you know, these days we hear a lot of people saying, oh, it's technology's fault. Technology yeah. is making me distracted. Technology, it's the video games, it's the Facebook, it's the news, it's the this, it's the that, it's all these things. And I say, BS. <laughs> this is just excuses. Let me tell you, people have been struggling with distraction forever. It's not technology that created this distraction. The Greek philosopher Plato 2,500 years ago called it akrasia, the tendency to do things against our better interests. And we have been distracted as a species since time immemorial. This is nothing new. So there's nothing wrong with going on social media. There's nothing wrong with watching a video on Netflix. There's nothing wrong with playing a video game. Stop putting this moral hierarchy of, oh, how you spend your time, that's a waste of time. That's frivolous. But how I spend my time, that's okay. Me watching football, that's fine. You on social media, ooh, that's bad. Video games, evil. No, give me a break. Anything you plan to do with your time, as long as it's done with intent and according to your values is fine. In fact, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time, as Dorothy Parker said. So I don't like this moralizing. It's kind of like these fad diets. Oh, no more carbs, no more fat, no more. No, it's part of a balanced diet. It's about how much 
we consume these things in what proportions? And it's the same thing when it comes to our media diet. You know, having a professor tell you, oh, stop using social media, even though they don't have a social media account, doesn't work. We depend on it for our jobs. We can't just stop using email. We can't stop checking our phones. And why should we? They're wonderful technologies. As long as we use them according to our schedule and our values, not the tech companies. Yeah, actually, Cal Newport, who wrote Digital Minimalism, says the same things. He says, technology is not necessarily bad. It's how we use these tools. And we can actually use them to our advantage. They can amplify our lives. Yeah, I love Cal. Don't get me wrong. I love Cal. And in fact, his book inspired me to write mine. Okay, wow. He, he even blurred my book. But Cal doesn't have a social media account. He does not use social media, which I think is fine for him, right? If it doesn't, I'm not telling people to go get a social media account. If it doesn't right. serve you, don't do it. But the advice of telling other people don't have social media accounts, I don't think it's practical, right? right? A lot of us depend on it for our livelihood. I mean, can you imagine, just for a second here, imagine if it wasn't COVID-19. Imagine if it was COVID-90. Yeah. Meaning COVID didn't happen in 2019. Let's mm -hmm. say it happened in the year 1990 before the internet, before social media, before all these incredible technologies that we have today, think for a minute how awful our lives would be. <laughs> so oh, before I know. we talk about, right? Before we curse these technologies and say, oh, it's all their fault. Think about what the world would be like in the vacuum of not having these technologies. And right now, please say in your mind, Thank you to these incredible technologies for connecting us together. I mean, I'm in Singapore, you're in Canada. We're talking now for basically free on other sides of the planet. Uh, I mean, these things are wonderful. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't moralize because what happens is, in fact, it's, it's fascinating. It was just a study actually that was published after my book was published, just came out, that actually showed that it turns out that when people use social media, you know, we've heard these studies that people feel worse after they use social media. They, they yes. have lower... Uh, mm -hmm. self-reported uh, uh, well-being. Turns out the people who report lower sense of well-being has nothing to do with how much social media they use. It has to do with their perception of social media. So mm -hmm. if you think social media is bad for you, you feel crappy after using it. Mm -hmm. But if you think, actually, it's great. It connects me to my friends. I'm able to connect with people I love. You actually feel fine. You feel great afterwards. Well, maybe it's because so it's, you, you know, go, go in it with intention. So exactly. you know what you're doing when you're in there. Whereas a lot of people can use these tools subconsciously, right? So if you're fully conscious yes. and aware of what you're doing, I think that you won't have those effects. Right. But it's, it's also our perception of them. But when we think about this as somehow morally bad, and by the way, people did this for every new technology, like literally oh, yeah. every massive technology. They said the same thing about comic books. They said the same thing about television, radio. We always have these moral panics about technology and it's never useful. It's so fascinating. So in your book, you provide strategies to help us manage distractions and you describe two types of triggers that can cause us to give into them, which are internal and external triggers. Now, starting with our root internal triggers, can you provide examples and the steps we can take to manage them? Sure, let me just uh, kind of define what those two types of triggers are. So we have the usual suspects of the external triggers. So when most people think about distraction, they think about the external triggers, the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in your outside environment that can lead you towards traction or distraction. Uh, it can, of course, be the notifications on your phone, emails, Slack channels. It can also be your boss. It can be your kids. Anything in your outside environment that leads you potentially off track from what you said you were going to do. Those are external triggers. Turns out, however, that external triggers are only 10% of the, the time 
that we get distracted, we get distracted because of external triggers. So what's the other 90%? That's the shocking, 90%, by the way. Yeah. It is, isn't it? Now, and studies have actually found this, where they track people's usage of their cell phones, and nine times out of 10, they're not checking their phone because of a ping or ding. Only one time out of 10 are they checking their phone because of notification. The other 90% of the time they check their phone, they're checking their phone because of what we call an internal trigger. What is an internal trigger? An internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape from. Loneliness, boredom, fatigue, uncertainty, uh, fearfulness, uh, stress, anxiety. These are internal triggers that we seek to escape from. And this is incredibly important. This to me was really a revelation because while we love to blame the external triggers, what I learned in my five years of research is that distraction by and large begins from within. That if you don't know how to master these internal triggers, if you don't control them, they will control you because the root cause of all distraction, all procrastination, it's not a character flaw. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing broken about your brain, most likely. It's simply that we haven't learned to deal with this discomfort in a healthy way that leads us towards traction rather than distraction. Because look, if you don't deal with those internal triggers, you will always find escape from something, as people always have throughout history. Whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, you will always find a distraction unless you know what you are looking to escape. What is that uncomfortable sensation that you're not prepared to deal with in a healthy manner? Because if there's one mantra I want folks to remember, maybe write this down if you get a chance, if you're listening, time management requires pain management. Let me say that again. Time management requires pain management. None of the tips and tricks, none of the life hacks, none of the guru's books will work. I'm telling you, I've read every single one of them. None of that stuff works if we do not start with the most important step, which is learning to master our internal triggers. Yeah. When I started reading your book, I was like, okay, in, in the middle of working, I, I did feel a little bit anxious. So I wrote down your steps and I was like, okay, so I have to identify the discomfort. So I was identifying this comfort. I was like, okay, so, you know, I, I'm feeling anxious. And then you suggested that we write down the trigger. And I was like, ooh, what was my trigger? Well, I'm working out of my kitchen. So uh, I was triggered to grab a snack, <laughs> explore the sensations. Like that was your next step, explore the sensations. Like, what does it feel like? It feels like I want to get up and like do something else. Like, and then ask yourself why. And then your next step was be aware of your liminal moments, which I didn't know what liminal meant. <laughs> it means our transitions from one thing to another. And yeah we are constantly doing that. Like think about right. those moments because those moments are time that's taken away from the things that you're doing, right? Your current task. Right. And, and once you explain to people like, what is a liminal moment? They're like, oh yeah, that happens all day long to me between, okay, I was working and then I had to go get a cup of coffee. So I started checking my phone while I was on the way to get my coffee. And then I started working again. And then I had to go to the bathroom, but then I started checking my phone in the bathroom. And then when I came out of the bathroom, I was still using my phone 30 minutes later and now I'm off track. Exactly. It's very important that we're aware of those liminal moments. Yeah. And I actually listened to a podcast where you're interviewed and you were talking about how you give yourself 10 minutes 
curious what that was. Sure, sure. So the 10 minute rule is just one of many, many techniques. There are three big things that we can do to master internal triggers. We can reimagine the task, reimagine the trigger and reimagine our temperament. And there's various techniques. There's over a dozen different things we can do. One of those techniques in terms of, uh, of reimagining the trigger is to, uh, is to give ourselves a little bit of time, a little bit of space. Well, one thing that people don't realize when it comes to these internal triggers uh, is that we do not control our feelings. We have this myth in society that somehow you can control your feelings, you can control your urges. That's not actually accurate. That an urge is, is not something that we have conscious control over. Think about it in terms of the urge to sneeze. Okay, if you have the urge to sneeze, you've already felt the urge. Right. If you have an urge to go get a cookie, you've already felt the feeling. You've already felt the urge. Now, what do we do in response to that urge? That's what we can't control. Hence the term responsibility it comes from how we respond to something. So when you feel the urge to sneeze, do you sneeze all over everyone or do you take out a handkerchief and cover your face so you don't get anyone else sick? It's about how you respond to the urge. And the same goes for how we respond to these internal triggers. When we feel anxious, bored, stressed, uncertain, do we escape with distraction? Do we turn on the TV to watch the news so we can worry about somebody else's problems a thousand miles away? Or do we take a shot of alcohol? Do we smoke a cigarette? Do we uh, scroll Facebook? Do we do email when we really should be working on that big project? Do we escape the discomfort? Or do we do the responsible thing, which is use that discomfort to push us towards traction, to use it as rocket fuel? Now, one of the techniques that, that I share, and by the way, I didn't invent this technique. I can't take credit for it. It comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. It's been around for decades, okay. very well studied technique. This isn't mumbo jumbo. This is, this is real science. This has been done in several peer reviewed journals. And the technique is called the 10 minute rule. The 10 minute rule says that you can give in to any distraction, okay? Anything that is not what you plan to do, you can give into it, mm -hmm. but not right now in 10 minutes, not, not for 10 minutes. One time I taught this and somebody told me, oh, so I can smoke a cigarette for just 10 minutes? No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. In 10 minutes, not for 10 minutes. And so why is this so effective? Because we know that strict abstinence oftentimes backfires. That when you tell yourself, no, don't do something, it actually makes you want it more. It's almost like a rubber band. When you pull on a rubber band, if you pull, 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 eventually you can't pull anymore. When right. you let go of it, it doesn't just go back to where it started. It snaps back and it ricochets across the room, right? That's what happens when we tell ourselves, no, don't do something. The rumination around don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Okay, fine, I'll do it. When we relieve that tension, when we let ourselves give in to that discomfort of wanting something, the brain registers that as pleasure. So we know now, actually, there's some fascinating research coming out around smoking, you know, something that we think of as very, very addictive. Turns out smoking is less about nicotine than we thought. Turns out smoking more so is about the pleasure smokers get from relieving themselves of not having to tell themselves not to smoke. Yeah, Isn't you mentioned amazing? this in your book, and it blew my mind. And I want to make, make sure that I was understanding it correctly. I think you were talking about how our internal triggers or urges can be just as addictive as nicotine. Is that what is that what you mean by that? Well, I don't I don't like to compare you know one drug to the other. That, that that's a little bit tricky. But I will say that we know that there's much more going on than a chemical sensation, mm -hmm. right? That uh, or or a behavioral sensation. You know, if you think 
chemicals, uh, chemicals are one level of addiction. And, and of course, that's, uh, that's something we're discovering is less and less about the chemical itself. And of course, there's different categories, right? The, the how the brain responds to cocaine or heroin is completely different from how it responds to social media. You know, you see these stupid headlines, oh, video games are as addictive and as cocaine because they light up the same brain centers, complete rubbish. It's not talking about scale or magnitude, right? Your brain acts completely different. We're not snorting Facebook and injecting Instagram. It's, it's a whole nother plane. But what it does tell us is that this basic response of denying yourself something is uncomfortable. And the relief of that discomfort can register in the brain as pleasure. If you ask, actually, what they've done surveys of smokers, and when they actually ask long-term smokers, and when they actually ask them, you know, be mindful of the smoking right now. Do you enjoy this? The vast majority do not. Almost every, almost 100% of smokers say it smells bad. It's kind of gross. It's a waste of money. I don't even get a buzz on it anymore. Like I don't even feel any different. So why do they smoke? Turns out the real reason is the relief when they say it's relaxing, mm-hmm. right? One is, of course, they're taking big old gulps of breath and slowing down your breathing is relaxing. But it's also the relaxation that they feel from the relief of not having to tell themselves not to smoke. I'll give you kind of a crude example. If you've ever gone on a road trip, right? And you have to start to pee, like you really need that urge to pee, but you can't yet because the rest stop is, a, is several miles away. Right. And the more you have to pee, the more you think about it and you can't think about anything else. And then finally, oh, you get to relieve yourself. Yeah. It feels kind of good, yeah, <laughs> right? Of to relieve, <laughs> no longer have the pain, the tension of telling yourself not to do something. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what's going on with distraction. Yeah, so whether that, it's that piece of chocolate cake that when you're on a diet and you're saying, oh, I don't want to have that chocolate cake, whether it's checking email when you want to work on the big project, whether it's telling yourself not to check Facebook, it's all the same psychology at work. So the solution, the way to disarm that is not to tell yourself no, it's to tell yourself not yet. Right. And this is where the 10-minute rule comes into play. So this, this is how the 10-minute rule works. And again, this is a, a, a one of dozens of techniques in my book, Indistractable, but this is a particularly effective one that anybody can start using right now, whether you buy the book or not. Here's how it works. Basically, you set a timer for 10 minutes when you feel that urge, right? The urge to eat that chocolate cake, the urge to uh, check email, whatever it might be. And you tell yourself, okay, I can give into that distraction in just 10 minutes. Now the timer started and you have a choice to make. You can either get back to the task at hand, go back to whatever it is you did want to do with your time or surf the urge. Now, what is surfing the urge? Surfing the urge acknowledges, as we said earlier, that these sensations are temporary. The urge does not last forever. It feels like it, right? These sensations, when we feel angry or lonely or bored, we feel like we're always going to be that way. Of course, that's never true. That, that these urges, these internal triggers are like waves. They crest and they subside. And our job is to surf the urge like a surfer on a surfboard. So what do you do? Okay, so for those 10 minutes, and I'll give you a very personal example. So I've written two bestsellers, countless blog posts. Writing never gets easy, okay? It's always hard work. All I want to do is just go Google something or let me check email or see what's happening in the news or a million different other things that I would love to do to get myself distracted so that I could escape the discomfort of having to do the work, right? But instead, I set this 10-minute timer. And then I, I stop, I, I close my eyes and I say, okay, okay, what am I experiencing right now? Hmm, feeling a lot of stress around this article. Why? Well, because I really want it to be good. I, I want to make sure that I'm actually helping people here, that this is true, that this is helpful. And I start exploring those sensations and I start talking to myself the way I would talk to a good friend. 
utilizing these principles around self-compassion, which is a whole other thing we talk about in the book, Indistractable, as well, about cultivating self-compassion. What you will find is if you just give yourself the space to talk to yourself the way you would talk to a good friend for 10 minutes, most of the time, by the way, it takes far less than 10 minutes. What you will find is you'll get right back to the task at hand, mm. right? And in those 10 minutes, nine times out of 10, when the timer rings and the 10 minutes are up, meh, you don't even feel like it anymore. Yeah, it doesn't always I love work. that. But nine times out of 10, it doesn't. So here's what happens. Mm-hmm. You do it for 10 minutes. And you're like, hey, that wasn't so bad. I actually don't really feel that urge for the chocolate cake right now or the urge to go you know, do something online. And then it becomes 12 minutes and 15 minutes and 20 minutes, et cetera. So you're building your agency, your capacity for prolonged periods of, of time without distraction. And this is how we, we grow this ability. So I've actually been doing this for well over a year, I would say. Uh, And especially, I guess, since COVID started, yeah, just working from home, I'll have these urges and I'll look at the clock on my computer. I'm like, no, 10 minutes. And then another 40 minutes will go by. I'm like, wow, I love that I was focused and I didn't give in to that. that It feels so good. Yes, yes, yes. And and, and I've been trying, I've been using this with with losing weight. I've been trying to, you know, do a little bit of a calorie deficit to shed a few pounds and, and it works just as well. You know, like I will, sometimes I'll see a dessert and say, oh, I really, really want that dessert. And just giving it 10 minutes, it's amazing. Like you kind of forget about that urge. And, and you know what? Sometimes if I still want it after 10 minutes, okay, fine. No big deal. Once in a while, you know, nine times out of 10, it's also okay. Yeah, we're, we're all imperfect. It's okay. <laughs> but by the way, I, sh- I should say real quick, I want to mention there is no silver bullet. A lot of times I think in personal productivity advice, people say, oh, this is the one thing you have to do. This is the miracle. There is oh, no yeah. miracle. Okay. It's, it's these four techniques in concert. If you just do this, not enough, right? There, you know, if, you, if you use the 10 minute rule, and you say like, I'll have that, you know, I can have that cookie in 10 minutes, but the cookie is right there in front of you in 10 minutes, you're probably gonna eat the cookie in 10 minutes, which is what external triggers are about. So it's really about using these four steps in concert together. Uh, that's how we become indistractable. So now in your book, you allude to the idea that making time for traction begins with our mindset. And that if we believe that we have control over our environments and technologies, we can adapt and create traction. And you reference one of my favorite books, Mindset by Carol Dweck, to support this idea. Mm-hmm. Would you say that having a growth mindset is vital to becoming indistractable? I think growth, having a growth mindset is vital to being alive these days. So just to to explain the amazing work of Carol Dweck, I'm a big fan of her work. And uh, the idea is basically having a fixed mindset versus having a growth mindset. A fixed mindset is I am good or I am bad. This is who I am. And we hear this oftentimes, like, oh, you can't change my mind. That's just who I am, you know, which is complete rubbish, right? We are much, much more malleable than we think we are. We do not have a fixed uh, identity even. It turns out so much of, of what we thought was a fixed personality trait turns out it's much more malleable than we thought. There are some uh, attributes of our personality that doesn't change, but we are far more malleable. We are, are, are much more able to grow than we think if we believe we are. So it turns out, so what, what the, the reason this comes up in the book, I don't talk about mindset per se. I talk about the work of Carol Dweck where she talks about how uh, a few years ago, there was a, a big controversy around what we call ego depletion. Uh, psychologists call ego depletion. This is this idea that willpower is a limited resource, okay? That we run out of willpower. And we hear this all the time. People tell us, you know, I used to tell this to myself. I would come home from work and I would say, oh, you know what? I am spent, you know, I'm spent. I have no more willpower, no more self-control. 
I can't say no anymore. Give me that pint of ice cream. Yeah. Yeah, as I mentioned, I used to be clinically obese. So give me that pint of ice cream. I'm going to sit in front of Netflix and just relax, right? Because why? Because I'm spent, spent. I have no more willpower left. And we tell ourselves this, and it turns out that actually a few years ago, there was some scientific credibility to this. There was this researcher, one particular researcher who ran studies around ego depletion, that we run out of willpower like gas in a gas tank. Well, as we do in the social sciences, when a study sounds a little fishy and sounds too good to be true, what do we do? We rerun the study. This is the beauty of science. The scientific method says we can rerun the study. Say, wait, was that a fluke or do we see this effect consistently? Well, they've rerun these studies around ego depletion now hundreds of times. And it turns out it appears that ego depletion does not exist. It's not real. There is no such thing as running out of willpower, except except in one group of people. And this is where the work of Carol Dweck comes in. So uh, Dr. Dweck at Stanford, where I used to teach, did a study where she found that the only people who really do experience ego depletion, they really do run out of willpower, like someone will run out of gas in a gas tank, are only people who believe Mm -hmm. that willpower is the limited resource. Right. So if you believe you are spent, you will act accordingly. And this is why this whole ideology that technology is hijacking our brains, that it's addicting us, there's nothing we can do about it, is so evil and why we have to fight against it. Because when you believe it's true, ironically enough, that's exactly what the tech companies want. Yeah, They want you to believe you're powerless. It's called learned helplessness. When you believe, well, there's nothing I can do. My kids, they won't stop playing video games. Then I can't stop checking my phone, right? I'm addicted. No, you're not. You're not addicted. You're distracted. Now, some people are actually clinically addicted. Some people really do have the pathology <laughs> yeah. of addiction. Just like, you know, look, not everybody who has a glass of, of wine with dinner is an alcoholic. Why do we think everyone who checks social media is somehow addicted? It's ridiculous, right? Some people do have the pathology. Very, very few of us do. The vast majority of us are not addicted. We are simply distracted. Okay. So those with fixed mindset are more likely to end up distractible. Would you say that? I would say so. Yeah. If you say, and I hear this all the time, I hear, oh, you know what? I, I, I just have a short attention span. No, you don't. <laughs> oh, I, uh, I have an addictive personality. Mm, probably not. An addiction is a pathology. It's a disease. Most likely you do not have that. Uh, and people make all kinds of I've heard it all. I've literally heard every reason why. No, 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 that wouldn't work for me. Well, <laughs> the reason it won't work for people is because they don't try it. Mm-hmm. That's why it doesn't work. You know, oh, I can't do that uh, because you see, I have this, uh, I have a short attention span. Well, have you tried the techniques? No, not really. So, so step number one is, is uh, master the internal triggers. Step number two is make time for traction, which is where we have to follow this, this, this mantra. It's very important. You cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Let me say that again. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if I look at your calendar and I don't know what it is you wanted to do with your time, then you have no right to say you got distracted because what did you want to do, (laughs) right? What did you get distracted from? The vast majority of people out there do not keep any sort of a schedule. And this is one of the most studied techniques in this field. It's called making an implementation intention which is just a fancy way of saying, planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. Thousands of studies have shown how effective this is. It's so simple. It's just about using what we call a time boxed calendar. It will absolutely 
change your life. And I talk about how we do this. We start with our values, how we make that time box calendar, how we do schedule syncs with our boss, uh, with our manager, with our families. It is a life-changing practice. Yeah, you talk about the time boxing strategy in your book. And I was like, wow, this is so interesting. So I keep a bullet journal and I've recently adopted a time boxing design. And it's basically just putting time blocks in your calendar. So all yeah. of your time is accounted for so that you'll know when you're distracted because you'll, exactly. you'll know like what you needed to do. What I love is that in my bullet journal, I used to just jot down my task for the day. But that wasn't really helpful because I was taking mm -hmm. many, many hours to do something I probably could have done in one hour, right? So right. for me, a time boxing challenges me to get a task done within a certain time frame. So rather than giving four hours for something, I'll, I mean, actually placing two hours to do something, I will get it done in that time frame. It's amazing. Amazing, right? Yeah. And, and this, is, this is the thing. So I want to kill a sacred cow here uh, of the to-do list. Keeping a to-do list, or I should say more specifically, running your life on a to-do list. And I'm not talking about getting things out of your head and onto a piece of paper into an app. That's actually very good. What I am trying to fight against, what many people don't realize is destroying, destroying their productivity for many of the reasons you just established. This idea of running your life on a to-do list. If you, The first thing you look for in the morning is to look at your to-do list about what you're supposed to do with your time, as opposed to looking at your schedule, you've already lost. To-do list, running your life on a to-do list is probably the worst thing you can do for your personal productivity. It's almost worse than doing nothing at all <laughs> because of the psychological effects. Here's what happens. Here's why I hate running your life on a to-do list and why I've switched. And, and again, I'm not talking about not writing things down. You should definitely get things out of your head and write them down. But if you don't also put those things on a schedule, if you don't also time boxing, you're, you're making it worse for yourself because a to-do list has no constraints. You can add stuff to your to-do list as long as the piece of paper is, right? The app is endless. You can always add more, 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 more. And here's why this is so terrible. Because when you get home at the end of the day and you look at that to-do list of all the things you still didn't do, and this is, I'm, I, this is autobiographical. This happened to me every single day. You feel like crap because here, here's this big list of stuff you still didn't accomplish. You said you were going to do it and you didn't. Liar, loser. Mm -hmm. You're reinforcing the self-image subconsciously of being the kind of person who doesn't do what they say they're going to do. You wrote that stuff down. You didn't do it. And that type of reinforcement takes a toll. We begin to believe it. And then you get people saying crap like, oh, I just, I'm not good at time management. Yeah, it's a planning right? fallacy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You keep, you keep doing this over and over again, and it reinforces this terrible self-image of someone who's incapable. And you, eventually you begin to believe it. And now the war is completely lost. As opposed to someone who uses a time box calendar, now you start measuring yourself, not by how many boxes you ticked off, but did you do what you say you would for as long as you said you would without distraction? That's all you have to do. And it turns out if you do that, you actually will get more done. Studies have found that people who use this time boxing technique, actually, when they stop measuring output and only worry about the input of the time and attention, they actually get more done. Than the yeah. to do list people. And by getting more done, being more efficient with your work, you'll get time back. And that's, that's what's right. key. And I, but that's I have right. to ask you, as somebody mm -hmm. who time blocks, and I'm sure your, your time is time blocked very well, do you create time boxes for white space? Time to disappear? Absolutely. Yeah. So important. So here's the thing 
how you want to spend your time is your business and it needs to be according to your values. And we walk through, you know, how, what are values? Values are defined as attributes of the person you want to become. And then I walk you through exactly how to establish based on your values, how to spend your time. How do we do that? We turn our values into time. It's really easy to say you have a value, right? Oh, I value physical health, but do you have time in your calendar for exercise? Oh, I value my children but do you have time on your calendar for them? Oh, I value my relationship, so important to me. But is that on your calendar? If I can't see it on your calendar, you're not living up to those values. It needs to be on your schedule, turning your values into time. Now, part of your values, in fact, the first place we start, there are three life domains, right? The first life domain is you. You are at the center of these three life domains. So the first step is to make sure you make time to take care of yourself, which can include time for meditation, prayer, reading, exercise, anything that you need to take care of yourself. That should be the first thing you put on your calendar. It includes, you know, I love to take walks outside. That's time for me, right? It's not like everything you time box has to be productive work related, quite the opposite. If you want to play video games, awesome. You want to check social media, great. Put that time on your calendar as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's super helpful. Since COVID started, I've been able to plan my work life around my life in my calendar. So it's been really helpful. So you're right. I mean, I'm putting all the most important blocks on my calendar first, but I need to like start creating that space, that white space, you know, it can be challenging, but you have to. So. Sure. And and, you know, in my family, we, we, it's kind of an oxymoron when I say it to you, you're going to laugh, but in my family, we have uh, uh, planned spontaneity. Plan spontaneity. It sounds funny, but essentially, what does that mean? So, for example, on a weekend, okay, so every Saturday I spend time with my daughter, and we have a big three hour chunk of time where the two of us get time, just daddy and daughter time, big three hour chunk of time. Now, I'm not going to plan, you know, 15 minutes for ice cream and 15 minutes for this. No, 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 no. It's a big old chunk of time of three hours for planned spontaneity. Why do I even plan that? Well, I plan it because when I know this time is reserved for my daughter, I can look at my calendar and I say, look, part of my values is to be an available, loving father. So did I make that commitment to her? Is that time on my schedule? Can I look back in 40 years and say, you know what? My daughter can never say I didn't spend enough time with her. It was right there on the calendar. (laughs) I want that time now. So I don't regret not giving that time to her in the future. But also the reason it's even more important is that it blocks out the things I don't want to do with my time. I don't know with that time, that that three-hour block, that planned spontaneity, we might go take a walk. We might go fly a kite. We might read a book. We might do a million different things. I don't know what we're going to do. It doesn't really matter. But I know what I will not be doing. I will not be on a phone call. I will not be checking social media. I will not be watching television. I will not be doing work. I know that time is reserved for her. That relationship is important to me. And I turn my values into time by holding that time on the calendar. I'm glad that you mentioned this example because I was talking to a friend of mine this weekend about time boxing. And he asked that very question. What about spontaneity? Like, what do you do there? Plan spontaneity. I love it. Plan spontaneity. Yeah. yeah if, you, if you want time just to say, look, I, I want some buffer time. I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. But here's the thing. It's not... You will find the spontaneity, okay? That's not the problem, <laughs> right? Like you will find the, the, the things to do. There is no shortage of stuff to do with your time. It's the other stuff, right? If you only work, you're not gonna make time for your friends and then you're gonna regret it 20 years from now. If you only 
you know, exercise all day, right? You're not going to have time for your work. So it's, it's about the stuff that you want to make sure you keep in your calendar. It's that stuff that's difficult to do. The stuff that's easy and fun, you'll do. That's not the problem, right? You'll find the time for Netflix and, you know, stupid social media crap. You'll find the time for that. It's the stuff that's difficult that if you don't put in your calendar, the stuff that you can let slip away, right? Like I used to do this with my wife. I'm embarrassed to admit this. I would give her whatever scraps of time was left over in my day. Oh, honey, I've got this really important thing at work. And oh, honey, I, I, my, my other friend needs me to do this and this. My buddy from college needs this. Or, uh, you know, there's this big deadline. And at the end of the day, you know, she, 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 I have to say, she called me out on this and said, wait a minute, you know, we have something very important here. We have to invest in this relationship. It's, so I can't be what, you know, in, it, we, it's a, kind of a side note, but we met in an economics class in college. And one of the lessons in, in this economics class was around the residual benefactor. The residual benefactor in business is the chump who gets what's, whatever's left over when a company is sold. Okay? okay, so the debt holders get their money first, then the equity holders, then whatever's left over, that's what the residual benef benefactor gets, right? The uh, residual beneficiary gets. And she, she says to me, it's kind of dorky, but you made me the residual beneficiary. Everybody gets first, right? You want to exercise, okay, you give time to that. You want to work that you give time to that. You have your other friends, you give time to them. But I deserve that time too. So, and she was absolutely right. And if I didn't reserve that time, for these important things that if we don't hold, we let slip away, then we look back and regret years later. So moving on to external triggers, you share tips on how to hack back on common external triggers, such as yeah. our smartphones, and you provide four tips to help us avoid constant pickups and mindless scrolling, which a lot of us can relate to. Can you explain these four R's? Yeah, so there's there just to back up for a second. So there are all sorts of external triggers, and so I kind of cover in rapid fire because this is this is what people kind of think of when they think about distraction, particularly when it comes to technology. It's about the pings, the dings, the rings. It's about all these things in our outside environment. So not only do I talk about okay, how do you hack back your phone? And there's some techniques here, these four R's around what we should do to replace our phone to uh, uh, make sure that these external triggers are not constantly distracting us from our phones, but also you know the less obvious types of distractions, you know, meetings. Oh my God, how many pointless meetings have we been on and Zoom calls have we been on that the number one reason that people call meetings, you know, the number one reason that people actually will waste your time and call a meeting that is not necessary? For a connection? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Oh, really? Which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But actually the number one reason is also because of these internal triggers that many people who call these superfluous meetings, instead of going through the discomfort of thinking, for themselves, we should brainstorm. Well, let's discuss this, right? Let's have a meeting. Come on. <laughs> so I tell you exactly like, you know, for example, a simple thing like requiring an agenda. <gasps> Newsflash. If you look at how many meetings over the past week you've been called into, how many of them actually have an agenda? How many of pe have people pre-circulated? Hey, here's what I like to discuss with our time. Do you know right. what? If you don't do that, no, no agenda, no meeting. Because you got to do the pre-work. <laughs> like you got to yeah. figure out why this time is useful. So there's a bunch of these techniques. I know people say, oh, my boss won't do it. Okay, we, I talk about them in the book. I know, I know you're going to have resistance. We talk about that, exactly what to do about, about these types of resistance. So meetings. Your kids. Oh, my God. For those of us who have kids at home, 
they can be a huge source of distraction. What do we do about that? Tell you exactly what to do about that. And then of course we have the, the usual suspects like social media and our cell phones. Uh, and there's some very, very simple things to do. I'm not, we're, I know we're running low on time, but essentially what we're gonna do is we're going to figure out how to make sure that the external triggers are serving us rather than us serving them. And then some of this is very simple stuff. You know, Two thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings. Mm-hmm. Two thirds of people with a smartphone never change. Can you really tell me, oh my God, Facebook is so addictive. Social media is hijacking my brain when you haven't turned off those stupid notification settings. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so I show you exactly how to do that. Email, oh my God, email is probably the bane of every knowledge worker's existence, right? It's something we feel like we have to use even though it's wasted so much time. So the techniques in the book can help you reduce the time you spend on email by up to 90%, 90. It's a, it's a really, really effective technique to help you reduce that time. So there's all that all this is to say there's a lot, this is the that's the most rapid fire section in the book. But there's, you know, I go boom, 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 boom through all these different external triggers and show you how to hack back. Super, super helpful too. I mean, one of the tips and I'll share is send less emails, you'll receive less emails. I love that. It's so true. I actually schedule the majority of my emails to be sent out later in the day so that I can focus throughout the day. Mm. And other distractions you touched on, desktop clutter. I thought it was really funny because I've told a lot of my friends, you know, that's subconsciously distracting you. And they're like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> and yeah. that, that is definitely yeah. a distraction. And, and yeah. Uh, yeah. another one I was, I was surprised by, you talked about open concept workspaces. You shared a study that shows that open concept desk environments is, is actually more distracting for workers. It yeah. is very, yeah, yeah, and and we actually see this trend too that companies are going away from it. You know, it's it, we, for a while it was like a, a cool hot thing to uh, to have an open workplace office, and there are some benefits. Like we know that 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 uh, when people in during those liminal moments, if you can have time to have a quick conversation, like there are definitely some benefits. But really, the subtext was is that companies figured out that by having open floor plan offices, they could save a ton of money because they didn't have to give everybody their own office. That's what was really driving that trend. Because if you actually look at productivity, output, happiness levels, sense of well-being, senses of control and agency, people hate it. Uh, they, they don't work very well, but there's, but they're not going away. They just save, you can just pack in more people per square foot. Uh, now, of course, like everything changes now that that uh, we have COVID, but you know, at some point, conceivably, we will go back to the office. Uh, so I talk about, okay, what do we do if you're working in a setting like this where, you know, someone can tap you on the shoulder and say, "Hey, can I talk to you for a quick sec?" Or did you hear that bit of office gossip? That turns out to be a much greater source of distraction in the workplace than uh, you know the pings and dings on our phone. So now, when it comes to distractions in our workplace, you share studies to explain how our technologies are not necessarily the culprit for workplace distraction but rather it's our always on company culture. This really hit me. Yeah. I love this part. That is the root of the problem. Uh, the idea right. that we always have to be on and available. Uh, can you share an example of what a company is doing today to help resolve this dysfunctional work culture? Yeah, so half half of the book is about things that you can do on your own, right? How you can become indistractable. These four steps of master internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, and prevent distraction with packs. That's the first half of the book. The second half of the book is about the various environments and people we interact with. So there's a section on how to raise indistractable kids. Very, very important. We teach them how to master this skill of the century because the world is becoming only more distracting. It's imperative that we teach them how to do this. There's a section on how to have indistractable relationships, right? With our friends, with our spouses, with our loved ones. How do we build those indistractable relationships? What happens if you're indistractable, but 
your life partner is very distractible. What do you do then? So I teach you exactly what to do. And then there's one section about how to build an indistractable workplace, which I think is an incredibly important section because look, you know, you can be indistractable, but what if your boss insists on uh, distracting you all the time, right? What do you do? And it turns out that this problem is much deeper than just the technology used. You know, the, a good metaphor here is imagine you're, it's Friday night, you're sitting down for dinner with your family. It's 7 p.m. and you're about to sit down and your boss calls you and says, hey, uh, I know it's Friday at 7 p.m. and I know you're sitting down with your family, but I really need to talk to you right now. Is it the phone's fault? No, it's your crappy boss who thinks that's okay, right? So this turns out to be much more a culture issue than a technology issue. It's not email, it's not Slack, it's not uh, any of that stuff. It's a company culture issue. And more specifically, the problem of distraction at work is caused by our inability to talk about the problem of distraction at work. That's the real problem, that when people can't raise their hands and say, hey, boss, you know, I can't get stuff done if I'm constantly interrupted, okay? Like, I can't, I, I, I can't do my best work for you if there's always a ping and ding and a meeting and a request. I don't have time to do the kind of work I need to do for you. But people are scared to have that conversation. Right. People are scared to raise their hand and say, this isn't working. Can we do something about it? But not everywhere. Some companies don't have this problem. Some companies don't have this distraction issue. And they're the ones, I call them these indistractable companies. They have an indistractable company culture. And I actually profile a few companies. One company that has always had this indistractable culture from day one, Slack, ironically enough, Slack is this company that many people blame as causing distractions, this group chat app, in case you, you don't use it. It's the largest group chat app. And many people blame this app. They were actually just, just acquired recently. Uh, many people blame this, this app as causing distraction, but at Slack, they don't have this problem. Another company I, I profile is Boston Consulting Group, which is actually you know, uh, the first company I worked, out, uh, worked at after college. And they had a terrible workplace culture. We were always on. Everybody was burned out. They had a very high employee churn. And that's changed dramatically. They have reformed their company culture. How do they do that? An indistractable company has three traits. Number one, they give people what we call psychological safety, the ability to talk about these problems in a safe environment. Number two, they have a regular forum to talk about these, these issues. And number three, management displays what it's like to be indistractable. So at Slack, they have this big neon sign in the, the company canteen that says, work hard and go home. It's part of the company culture. So to close our conversation, considering we should create traction mindfully to become indistractable for the long term, what is one technique our listeners can apply today? So it's really about these four techniques in concert, mastering the internal triggers, understanding what those causes of distraction are. Number two, make time for traction. Make that calendar so you can know the difference between traction and distraction. Number three, hack back the external triggers. Ask yourself, which of these external triggers are serving me and which am I serving? And then finally, we didn't get to talk about this, but super important, make these pacts where we can make sure that we have a firewall against distraction as the last line of defense. Amazing. And there's a lot more, by the way, in the book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention. And oh my your gosh, our listeners, I, I highly recommend reading this book. I'm, I'm so excited to share it with everybody. And thank you so much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Have a great one. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. Nir's book, Indistractable, has already helped me become more intentional with my time, and so I highly recommend you give it a read. And I should note that while Nir and I could have continued our discussion, unfortunately, we ran out of time. So I thought I would take a moment to review the one area in his book that we didn't get to, which is how to prevent distractions with packs. This is the fourth step to becoming indistractable in his book, and this has already been been working for me so I didn't want to leave it out. So to give you a quick teaser, when it comes to distractions that we can control, Nir shares three ways to help us prevent them with what he calls packs, which include effort packs, price packs, and identity packs. And each pact is a different method to help us avoid potential distractions that we can keep on track. The first pact, an effort pact, is when you put some type of friction between you and something you don't want to do. And a great example of this would be buying an outlet timer to shut off your internet at a specific time at night to control yourself from using your devices before bed. And Nir shares some other interesting examples of effort packs, including distraction-proofing apps that can help you focus during your workday. The second pact is called a price pact, which is when you place money on the line to encourage yourself to do something you say you will do. And Nir describes a few examples in his book that actually helped him achieve his weight loss goal and also helped him finish this very book on time. And lastly, the third pact is identity pact, which is when you set an identity for yourself and act on it. For example, if you tell yourself, I am the person who does X, you are more likely to act on it. And again, Nir shares examples and progressive techniques to help you shape your identity as someone who is indestructible for the long term. So that is it for PAX, but I, I wanted to make sure that I included that because we obviously didn't get to that and it was definitely, it's been very influential for me. And so now overall, what, what I learned from this book is that when I feel distracted and I know that it's in my control, I should no longer place blame on the distractions themselves, but rather identify my discomfort and use the tools I've gained to challenge myself from giving in to them. A lot of self-control. I've also learned that we really don't need those funny gadgets that lock our phones or our food items. You've probably seen them. You can find so many of these on Amazon. I literally found a lock jar that reads, this locking jar has a timer to save you from yourself. And I had to laugh because this is just another item that we do not need. Instead, let's do the work. Simply put, the better we become at noticing the drivers of our distractions, the better we will be at managing them over time. So to close, I highly recommend you check out Indistractable today as Nir offers so many great tips to help you hack back on everyday distractions. And you can find a link to his book and other helpful articles written by Nir in our show notes, along with a link to Nir's latest TED Talk and a helpful video on how to build a time box calendar. So thanks again to all of you for listening, and I will speak to you soon. Bye-bye.